In 2018, my last book of poetry came out called Bone Antler Stone, and it is about prehistoric Europe. It's about 60 or 70 poems that take you from the Ice Age caves up until roughly uh, contact with Greece and Rome. And one of the questions that came up uh, from readers, and actually it was one that, that I thought about a lot as I was writing them, as I set out to write them, was uh, basically how do you write about archaeology, because that's essentially what it is. Uh, the, uh, the peoples who lived in Europe before their contact with uh, Greece and Rome either had no written language or uh, they had it and it was uh, uh, really only used by a specialist group, you would think, by the religious specialists. And those people were uh, not keen to write down their secrets. So how do you write poetry about those people? How do you write poetry essentially about artifacts, about grave sites, about uh, monuments? Um, how do you take essentially a uh, what you would think of as a documentary about Stonehenge and try and write a poem about Stonehenge? Um, one of the things that I made sure to avoid at all costs was to use the word ancient, to use words like that, uh, because to them, of course, they were not ancient, they were just living their lives. And even if they came across monuments that uh, were centuries or a millennia uh, older than they were, um, it would be a different sense of what that kind of age meant than what it means now to have sort of stars in your eyes and uh, want to go to Stonehenge at the summer solstice or something like that. Uh, the other mistake, to, to me anyway, it's a mistake uh, that I tried to avoid was to uh, sort of take the easy way out, which is to uh, come across a, an amazing piece of uh, an amazing artifact or piece of ancient artwork or a burial uh, or a monument like Stonehenge um, and to uh, imagine yourself back there or to uh, use the first person pronoun back there um, if I were at Stonehenge or or to just uh, talk about your own visit there uh, there's a poet that I really love and respect who wrote uh, a series of poems about the Ice Age caves, I think about Lascaux and Altamira, and she, instead of writing poems about the cave, she wrote poems about her visits there. And um, I'm all for autobiography and poetry, but this is the one time when I think that the author should uh, probably disappear uh, behind a description uh, or an imagined description of what those places must have been like at the moment in the time. And really the other way, and that's the poem I want to share tonight, uh, is to take a description that was written by the Greek and Roman sources and uh, expand upon it or extrapolate it on it. Very often I realized that what I was doing was the old uh, creative writing class exercise, which is to uh, start with a sentence from somebody else 
and then make the poem, uh, finish the poem yourself. In this case, uh, my source was the Germania of Tacitus, and that is, uh, for those who aren't aware of it, you should go and find a copy of it. It's only about uh, 30 pages in translation, and then there will probably be 50 pages of notes after that. But uh, this is the Roman author Tacitus who, let's see, he was born about the year AD 57. And um, the Germania is considered one of the earliest examples of uh, uh, anthropology, I guess, cultural anthropology. Uh, and it is supposed to be about the, the uh, German tribes living north of Rome at the time. <coughs> and in the 45th uh, section of the Germania, there is this paragraph. Uh, Tacitus says, Beyond the Siviones is another sea, sluggish and almost motionless, which is believed to be the girdle and boundary of the earth. For the last rays of the setting sun continue to shine until sunrise, bright enough to dim the stars. Popular belief adds further that the sound of the sun's emergence from the sea can be heard and the shape of his horses and the rays on his head can be seen. Thus far and no further, and the report is true, does the world extend. So you get a sense of uh, the popular story that Tacitus has heard. Um, the popular belief uh, extends slightly into uh, Roman mythology as well, the idea of the sun being pulled by uh, uh, a chariot, which is being pulled by horses. And, uh, and this is also a story from the edge of the known world. Uh, and then, just to give an idea of how the notes work, at least in this edition, uh, this paragraph uh, uh, appears on page 60 of the translation that I have. And the footnote for it appears on page 132. You could spend the rest of your life uh, reading and writing and studying the Germania and the footnotes to it. And the footnote to that says, Greek and Roman writers report the popular idea that the setting sun hissed as it dropped into the sea. None except Tacitus connect the rising sun with the noise but in German folklore, uh, the term daybreak, and I believe that the uh, word here is Tagesunbruch, was associated with a sound. And forgive me if I got that pronunciation of that German word wrong. Um, so you have those two, those two things. And I saw that and I said, yes, that needs to be a poem. And this is the poem that came out. It is called The Sun Sets Into the Sea, and it is one of my favorite poems in the entire book. The sun sets into the sea with a hiss and rises with the sound of a driven wheel, the creak of speaking stone, metal, and wood. The sun sets into the sea to simmer and rises with the sound of stretched leather and the song of the horse's chain and bit. 
The sun sets into the sea and is doused and rises with the sound of reborn flame rolling into another red morning. The sun sets into the sea and the sun disappears down into extinguished light, a golden disk diving to a dark blue. But the sun rises as the night retreats and rises like some cart out on the road, setting to the old labor of daylight, a wounded wheel and an exhausted gear, chipped and scarred and with a battered hub, like an old mad father afraid to die. But he always dies when winter comes and sets colorless into the sea, gray sun into the iron waves, the sound of sinking. So that's how you get to that poem. And I hope uh, over the next while, maybe to do one or two of these poems a week from that book, um, to just talk about that. Uh, I remember in one of the only poetry courses that I took in college, uh, we were given the assignment of Robert Lowell's Skunk Hour, and uh, uh, the advice the teacher gave was, uh, you know, I'm giving you uh, a poem that is, you know, about a page, half a page long, printed out. But I want you to spend as much time with that one page as you would with, say, an entire short story. And, um, and so I think, and you can certainly email me if you think otherwise, um, I think that where necessary, uh, and if I think the story is worth telling, um, I will surround the minute or so it takes to read the poem with uh, some useful comments, especially since this stuff is archaeology and uh, ancient history. There I went using the word ancient there. Uh, classical history, um, uh, old Europe, as they say. Uh, it's a lot of things that, that uh, many people don't take much of an interest in. And so it'll be fun to uh, to sort of uh, point the way a bit and hopefully uh, justify the poem sitting there by itself uh, at the end of the day. So to start with that first poem. I wanted to take a trip off the north coast of Scotland today to read a good bit of the poems I wrote about uh, Orkney that are uh, that constitute the last section of my book, Bone Antler Stone. These are based on a trip that my wife and I took to Orkney over the Labor Day week, beginning on Labor Day weekend uh, a few years ago. I meant to do this last week just to commemorate it, but I didn't have the time. Um, so the Orkney Islands are off the uh, northeast coast of Scotland, and it's just sort of an incredible place to be if you ever have a chance to go there. I don't mean to fetishize great age or these are the oldest things, the oldest this or that, the first this or that. Uh, if I seem to be doing that, what I'm really trying to say is 
here it is uh, a miraculous place to be where so many others have been and where you can still see evidence of them, where you can still see this one spot of land, this tiny piece of land, especially uh, we were on the mainland of Orkney. It wouldn't have taken more than a half hour, I don't think, to uh, make a circuit of the whole place. Um, and it was interesting when we were there, uh, before we were able to rent a car, we took a bus around and one fire, uh, a fire, a house fire uh, took place while we were there and it disrupted all of the bus lines uh, so that uh, so that they were late picking us up one time. And that was another wonderful indication of how interconnected the whole place is. Um, it has the wonderful site of Scar Bray, the oldest, I believe the oldest village uh, in Europe uh, that has survived. And it survived in a wonderful way, I believe in the 1850s. A huge storm, uh, the wind just sort of blew the coast off and underneath they found uh, they found this living site. If anyone has not seen pictures of it, go and find pictures of it. But it also has, uh, I believe, the largest concentration of stone, prehistoric stone circles, uh, many of them predating Stonehenge. And I'm pretty sure the theory nowadays is that the idea of stone circles may have even started in Orkney and traveled south. And I'm not sure if this is consensus as well, or if this was just an idea I had when we were there. The place is so windswept and uh, so lacking in trees because of all that wind that uh, I always wondered if that was the reason that they built stone circles rather than uh, what Britain and Scotland had, uh, prehistoric Britain and Scotland had, which were uh, before Stonehenge, there would have been wind, wood hinges of, of just trees. And I wonder if that is why Orkney had stones instead, because they basically had no trees. Um, so I ended up writing um, a handful of poems. And in many ways, this is where the book starts. I did end up, uh, I did write a few of the burial poems. I did write the Star Car poem uh, and a few others before we took this trip. But the idea of doing an entire book on prehistoric Europe really only solidified after that trip to Orkney and after I tried to uh, capture my feelings for the place in poems. And really it was a sense of, uh, of loss, a great, immense sense of loss of having been in this place for about a week and a half, two weeks, and then having to leave it. Um, it really kind of uh, hit me for a long time, and I wanted to try and keep the place inside as much as I could, and it seemed that a good way to do that was to try and write poems about them. I'll read a good number of them here, I think uh, seven or eight or so all in a stretch. I didn't know how to pick only one or two to read, and I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't want to have to reintroduce the subject each time. So it seems worth treating this sort of as a travel log and doing them all at once. I'll read my favorite and most representative of them uh, here. 
uh, the story begins. I had to have uh, a travel companion, uh, a spiritual travel companion, I guess you would say, because of course the real travel companion was my wife. But the the spiritual one was a man named Pythias. He lived in the fourth century BCE in Marseille, and he is well known to have taken a trip from Marseille up through France over to the tin mines of Cornwall in uh, southwest Britain, all the way up Britain, either by land or hugging the coast, up to Orkney and Shetlands, and, and then it's assumed that where he ended up before returning to Marseille was Iceland. And so I started the series of Orkney poems with this one. It's about Pythias in the Shetlands. And it says, I imagine him in energetic middle age, young enough to be stupid, seasoned enough to make it from Marseille, and wise enough to want it at all, to circle Britain from the tin mines of Cornwall to the Irish Sea and the cold islands north. An ancient Greek who never saw Athens, but who may have walked much of Albion amid people and tongues already passed into myth and exaggeration. But he saw them sigh at the rain, saw them quiet and real and lauding the seasons and a thousand confidential gestures and in the Shetlands may have heard travelers like himself, pilgrims worn by the hard sea and the long ache of lonely navigation, rise to grumble about further islands, further north, further east, further west, and ice. And I should have said that the Shetland Islands are even further north and east off of Scotland than the Orkneys. Um, actually, this I wrote this poem before we left on the trip too, I believe, because I was still in the in the mode of referring to myself in the first person, even though I was dealing with the historical person here, imagining myself speaking with him. I came across a uh, a remark by Yeats the other day. And he said that uh, he felt that the, the Trojan War was as immediate and alive to him as anything in the newspapers. And while it might seem especially, uh, uh, especially strange for me to, to find affinity with that statement today, being that I'm recording this on 9-11, it's also strange that Yeats said it because he did live so much with the politics and life of his time. But I think both of us should be allowed to say something like that now and then. And I certainly do feel a great uh, affection for Pythias and for these wanderers than I do for many people that I encounter day to day uh, here in suburban America. And, but I don't think that that also has to preclude uh, not being energized by modern life at all. Um, but I just thought that as I was reading this, uh, just having a great connection to this, to this traveler. And so I took him with me. I, I imagine the, the next poem I'm going to read is called The Wanderer, Flight to Orkney. And occasionally I try to mimic or at least come up with my own version of the uh, 
the Anglo-Saxon uh, rhythm of uh, alliteration. And uh, this is one of the times when I tried to do that. And for those who know the Anglo-Saxon uh, or the Old English poetry, The Wanderer is one of those poems. And so here I imagine myself on the, on the plain to Orkney uh, and meeting Pythias there on the plain. He says, I met up with Pythias there on the plain, the one heard from a hundred years after Herodotus, who turned Greek tradition into truth. All the tentative talk of tin islands, of mines and a mother source of amber. Pythias was the pilot who proved it. From ancient France to the Pharaohs, through the threshold of the north to Thule, and now next to me so near, so near but still measuring and marking out the meaning of the stars and the sea, and the shafts deep down through the dread earth, delving for the veins. His haggard head a mournful horde of names and numbers and of navigation, and of what the world was and how it went, those huge seasons spent hugging Albion's shore. And seeing my slim book about him, he smiled somehow to see his own world reshaped. But as we descended, he dissolved and died away into a ninth and another wave in the North Sea. And that reminds me, of course, that the book I was reading on the plane over was uh, a book by Barry Cunliffe about Pythias. Um, of course, I can't remember the name of it. But if you look for Barry Cunliffe and Pythias, you will find it. It's a wonderful little book. And uh, the other thing, too, of course, is there's a lot of mention of mining here. Uh, that is one of the reasons that he was going there, I suppose, to make sure that there were actually these mining sites. And one of the reasons that we don't know this for sure, one of the reasons we don't know for certain that he went to Iceland and to these other places is because the work he wrote uh, is lost to us and is only known through uh, very fruitful fragments. Now, when I got to Orkney, I traveled to Orkney first, and my wife followed the day after. Um, I did what anyone would do. Uh, I went to the bank to get some money out and then went to the bookstore. Uh, I had something to eat, and then I took uh, a bus from the, the main city there called Kirkwall out to uh, a small little village, or I guess you would call it a village, called Bursay. And I really didn't know quite how their buses worked and and I knew that the um, that the cottage we rented was uh, a few miles distant but I didn't know uh, I wasn't familiar with the bus and I didn't know that all I had to do was sort of ring the bell and they would let me off uh, wherever it was and so instead of taking the bus um, well, first of all I fell asleep on the bus from Kirkwall to Bursay and when I got off the bus I bought some cereal and a few things and uh, I just walked. I think it must have been for about two hours. Just walked and uh, until I got to the cottage. Um, I don't know how many miles it was. Um, and I suppose that that is the, especially because uh, my daughter was born only a year and a half later, and because my wife and I are so rarely physically apart at all, 
That seemed to be the longest walk and the most silent time that I've ever had by myself since I met my wife and uh, will probably ever have now that the three of us are together almost all the time. And so that that walk to me has always uh, been a sacred moment in my mind. And the poem, I tried to write about it. Um, one of the reasons I'm reading them here is just to see if they can take a few knocks and if they can still stand up. The poem I wrote about it that I'm going to read now, Walking Berse to Swane. Swane is where the cottage was. Um, I wanted to get it down. I wanted to see if I had learned anything from Wordsworth and his poems about uh, wandering through the Lake District. And um, just to see if I was able to uh, hammer together some words and put up this monument to that walk. And let me see if this still pleases me or not. Uh, walking Berse to Swane. I woke in Berse and stumbled from the bus, found a small shop with cereal and milk, and with these juggled between my arms and with my laptop and some books on my back, I walked the three miles to Swane along the winding, windy road to our cottage. While I'd already been up for a day and only wanted to sleep for another, that flat, curving road will never leave me. Two hours of long shadows and waning day, and clouds crawling as slow as me, always with another stop and backward look at the road receding, while the stubborn North Sea seemed to stay where it was, always at hand, the brow of Bursay like a huge, slim rock skipped into the ocean centuries ago by the flicked wrist of some bored god or giant. And for those exhausted walking hours, that tidal island was my monument, dipping away as the road rose, or how it would slide to the left or the right with the curve of the blacktop and my controlling feet. But mostly the fields were empty, mostly those minutes were my own, the farmhouses or cottages or homes of crumbled stone, abandoned and jagged and roofless and taken back by the yellow-green land. Mostly this was all, and all that was everything. A few times I stepped into the high grass to let the odd local drive by, and while I had lost sight of the sea, Near the end, the downward slopes of two hills met, and there, suddenly, was a triangle of blue, and a northward glance that wouldn't hit land until the ice and snow of the Arctic. Further seas and other islands, made for someone else's feet, if at all, since here was the cottage I'd only seen photos of, back on another shore when this long walk had only been a hint, only a desire, and not the memory I cannot now shake. And just, just reading that, I feel on the high wire again that I was when I wrote it, and I'm happy to see that, at least for me, that still stands up. Uh, it really was. There were just farms, uh, working farms or abandoned farms, uh, all along the way, 
and looking backwards was the brow of Bursay, which, as I said in the poem, is a tidal island. That's the, the subject of the next poem I'll read from. Um, because a few days later, after we had spent some time in Kirkwall and elsewhere, my wife and I took a trip to the brow of Bursay. We took the bus. We knew how, how the buses worked better. And uh, went down to the shore and there were schedules of when you could uh, uh, when you could cross over to the brow of Bursay, when the tide would be out and there would be a little roadway across to the island, and uh, and when you had to be back, otherwise you would be stranded on the island for the night unless you had a boat, and so that was an even an even more remarkable kind of walk. Uh, walking over the literal uh, bed of the ocean uh, and this just scarified, I think scarred is really the best word for it, this scarred landscape. I won't read the, the entire poem. It's a four-part four poem. I'll only read the first one to just give a sense of what it was like. Uh, so you're, you're on a beach that no one would go sunning or building sandcastles on seaweed everywhere in the sand. Ahead of you is a small island where you know that the, where you know the Vikings once lived, where you know there was a, a monastic site, and where in general is also a place that you wouldn't want to live. Um, and you're walking there, and you're walking there because the tide is out, and you can walk across this path into the water. And the wind, the tremendous sound of the wind on Orkney is uh, always there, uh, just roaring in your ears. And this is the first part of that journey. It says, Down the car park steps, down to the white beach, down to the black clumps of seaweed stuck up through the sand like hair from a buried head, heavy, flattened, green-brown leaves, glistening above some submerged and dreaming sand-filled head. With mainland behind, point of snoozing left, scraggle of sea road right, and then straight north sea, and the two of us caught between in the sound on the perpetually wet causeway, the tide calm but always calmly coming, water shredded slightly, lightly rippled, water terraced and layered by hard wind and the slow assurance of certain tide. Whole forests of silt, silken tangle swaying to the pulse of algae, moss, and immersion. Shelves of rock, tiered roadway into the sea, terminating not long after we'd left into undertide, into simple surf, simple seafloor, and abundance and deep, and coated over with sheet and wave and song. Maybe I should read the second part about what it was like on that island itself. I'll try that here. Because there are the remains of the, uh, of the Viking houses as well as the monastic houses there. Just the outlines of the buildings, but obviously not the roofs. And it says, there are only doors here on the brow. The glazed windows are all in the grass, bits of glass that once let you look out 
Now only doors, now only entrances, now only perpetual exposure. No exit or escape from the wind. My feet on gravel and sand silenced by the unending complaint of air and the weakening cliff glancing down on the great scarred shelf naked under the sun, looking like farmland carved and rutted by rolling knives and great bladed wheels. And I sat in one of those houses, one of those houses without windows, those lone houses now barely foundations. I sat where there were no longer walls and imagined opening the door of morning to that cold, to that howl, those scythes of white cloud over the blue, the blue which rushes behind the wind and steals the cliff edge year to year. Pictish, Pictish houses already vanished, down the old throat and whirlpool of ruin. The Norse houses we wandered nearly there, and the devoured walls barely to my knees, all weathered but somehow unweary, and standing as any standing stones. The strangeness of the Scottish flag there, incongruous as the sea-facing streets, the smithy, the sauna, the paved hearth, the warmth and steel of generations, lives unlike ours, lives of basic green and brown, slow but lacking relaxation, on the edge of hunger and safety, this slope by the sea far from leisure and far from want in its brutal need. And what comes to mind now is that I wrote that poem, that I sweated and bled for that poem, for those lines, uh, in a Panera in suburban Pittsburgh. Uh, and that's just the way it goes, I guess. Um, I remember being there, and then I remember writing it out of me, trying to write it out of me. This is, the next poem is called Grain Earth House. So on the one hand, you have great sites like Stonehenge, or I imagine what it must be like to be standing at the foot of the Great Pyramids. On the other hand, you have this other place that, uh, so my wife and I took a trip into the city of Kirkwall, uh, walked for a bit into what anyone in America would recognize as an industrial park, with, uh, businesses all around. But in the middle of all the buildings is a, uh, is a fence, and uh, you had to get a key for the lock on the fence from one of the restaurants in the city. And within the fence, it looks like, uh, to those who know the Ohio Serpent Mounds, the Native American uh, Serpent Mounds, um, there's just like a little ripple uh, in the grass, a little rise in the grass of a shape of something there. and. What was there was uh, basically someone's cellar. It was a grain earth house where people would keep, uh, I guess, their perishable food uh, over the summer and over the winter to keep. And uh, it's not a burial place. It's not some grand spot. And especially being in the middle of an industrial park, it was even less glamorous. But for me, it was as moving a place as any as I've ever been, in part because uh, 
my wife, I had uh, I asked her to go back up and out while uh, I spent about five minutes down there by myself. And I turned the phone light off uh, and just sort of sat in the dark among these wettish, these wet walls that are down there, uh, listening uh, to the quiet, uh, listening to the dark. And this for someone who uh, does not like confined spaces, but there was, uh, there was no question about me doing this. And I don't mean that I had some sort of mystical experience down there or that I uh, heard the voices of the dead or of the generations or something like that. There was nothing like that there. It was just a, just a feeling of intimacy with what was basically somebody's basement and that it is still preserved um, and that uh, I could have been there for a moment to just uh, let it seep into my skin. I won't pretend that I understand what that life must have been like, but just to have been there and to have shown my respect was something wonderful. This grain earth house dates to 100 BC, and this is what the poem sounds like. I should go on my hands and knees to you, phone light or flashlight, showing only circles of gray-brown wall, damp with centuries. The low tunnel, a small curve, leading to a larger room, a tall, rounded space peopled by freestanding pillars. The past, it seems, stationed there in the wettish dark, eyes scooped out but mouth and voice still going. Down here was where dairy and meat were stored, or grain, from the earth, saved again in the ground, Grain from the gods gathered and given back. A root cellar quickly meant many things when we turned the lights out in that chamber and emerged changed a few minutes later from the droning rattle of seed and source. And then a, a sort of ep uh, epilogue to that poem is the unavoidable conclusion that this place is a damp body bones buried, the slime and wet of thirsty living stone, something spinal, something central and polar, no clock like this dripping, like this crouching darkness that does not move or need to. And the next poem is about the Orkney Museum, and the poem is called Bone Antler Stone, and this is what gave the title of the book, obviously. And this is the furthest I've gone, simply assuming that the terminology of archaeology and finds, just simply stringing them together, maybe as Whitman may have, if he had gone to Orkney, uh, assuming that uh, just the vocabulary of archaeology and finds can be its own poetry. And this is what I remember from Orkney Museum. The long bones of sheep, spliced and made into hundreds of pins, pulled from the animal and put to use, long buried but now under glass. The palmed cups of stone lamps, scooped out bowls for oil, still rimmed dark from prehistoric flame. 
the unknown, unfinished, bulbous forms of worked stone, the shape of a seated figure or a mountain, others random growths, star-shaped and handheld, all of them a mystery. Polished pieces of bone no bigger than a fingernail, polished absent-mindedly, grooved and smoothed by idle hands, precious now as any tool, the working of some familiar mind. Bones made into beads, bone bits the size of teeth, perforated with bone drills and strung through and worn. Bone jewelry atop garments of skin, all covering our own skin, our own bones. Pottery fragments like serrated sleeves of dried and sand-buried papyrus. Pottery lips or jagged bases closer to dug-up skull or brain case. Pottery, the memory holder or like broken-edged ancient teeth welded to Neolithic gums. A scattering of blackened pieces of pottery, earth-buried and soil-colored or charred, now laid out on a dazzling white shelf like two dozen islands thrown to a glittering sea. A bowl made from a whale's vertebra, and what handles, what depths, and how to eat when it's the container that fills you with awe. A link from the sea monster's spine now in your lap, steaming or cold or some central cauldron for all to pull from. Or perhaps it's just expected when one's neck or wrists are hung with beads of whale teeth, its huge mouth now holding the head high or just juggled in the hand like dice or shaken and left in the pocket for luck carved antler points, worn from use or burning, hollowed and perforated points and curves of bone for handles, for music, for wearing, every animal a breathing storehouse of tools. Stone cleavers, mattock heads of whalebone or rock, the stone point of prehistoric plow, or the shovels smilingly made from shoulder bones, since our own shoulders would feel the ache all pulled from the earth or peeled from skin to work the earth and feed our own skin these this small glass case just some stone age shed sweat and muscles and their remains spring and summer work or salty from the sea fragmented but content from the long restful millennia in the ground And the next is one of my favorite short poems, simply about coming upon uh, a small stream or a burn, as they would, as they called it, uh, after a day of walking. This is the burn of Board House and the Barony Mill. The burn of Board House and the Barony Mill. The words are beyond music and rhythm, or they bring to them color and memory. Waves and waves of windy, sand-colored grain, bordered by gray barbed wire. High grass and the bright shots of curled and coiling thistle. And the rush of the burn to the sea, perpetual. The haste and hum and somehow the languor of water in its ways. Past abandoned outbuildings and the bustling mill. Through fields and beneath bridges and between backyards too empty as ever, 
into Bursay Bay. There is no thrum like this running river, this drawl and croon that still hasn't settled. From the first archaic ears to stop and smile, or to the afternoon that we caught up to it. And I can't tell you how uh, how much effort it took to come up with thrum and croon there to find the real music of what hearing this river was like, this little stream. So to go from the stream to, and to end up at Scarbray, 3000 BCE, uh, the earliest uh, European village, as I mentioned earlier, that was only discovered uh, because of a great storm that blew apart the beach um, and revealed this old community. This is uh, Scarbray, and again, if I believe, I keep, I keep saying this, uh, poetry is a tightrope walk. Uh, just reading Walt Whitman again today, um, I start at the beginning and I'm, and I'm enthralled, and I am just hesitant and joyous as I read, waiting for him to get to the end, not wanting him to fall off the rope. And this is one of the times where um, I really felt I had hit something. I had gotten Scarbray down into this poem. It says, Follow the alley of flagstones to a slab door of wood or rock locked with a shaped bar of whalebone. Inside, opposite the door, a dresser stacked with pottery, wool, beads of bone and shell, or pendants of whale's teeth, or the ivory tusks of walrus and boar. The hearth is central. The hearth is heat and light, and the cooking of all that is caught. Mutton and venison, Gannet and golden plover and lobster, eel and salmon and mussel, cod and crab and pork, gull and scallop. Wild berries fill the belly too, wild cherries, hazelnut, honey, some form of fermented plant for beer, or the richness of cows and goats. Near the hearth, a tank for fish bait, while beds and shelves curl around, all surrounding the fire fueled by seaweed beneath the rafters of whale ribs. That's right. Beneath the rafters, the roof of your house of whale ribs. There is one building with no bedding, but still a hearth, always a hearth. No metal yet, only stone, only wood and bone, blades, mattocks, whistles, fine points and polishers, all undertaken so near the sea. Generations of food waste and ash, dung, bones, broken pottery, shells, or a rope of crowberries. Centuries of families, layers of houses, stacked like rock atop each other. Farmers farming, farming, hunters hunting, a nameless North Sea and a still nameless wind, giving sound and flavor to the landscape and the prized lives that prompted those circles of stone, that made an occasion of a hill or a loch, coast or height or isthmus. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, we found the village and the bay another excuse for green and blue, five thousand years to our first world, having flown far to propitiate those 
who may have sailed from the south to this true north, treeless and edged like a blade. Now there are so many more poems that I could share here, but uh, the very last one will have to be The Wanderer Part Two, Flight from Orkney. This is the last poem in the book, the last poem in the series, and this is, as I said, uh, leaving Orkney uh, and having to land in New Jersey of all places. That made it even worse. Um, and just having uh, a great sense of mourning and of missing, of, of having finally found a place where my wife and I both felt as if we belonged. Um, this might strike anyone who lives on Orkney now as ridiculous as just the romantic notion of uh, uh, that travelers can have sometimes, and maybe that's all it is. Um, but uh, if we could have, we would have dropped everything and uh, gone to live there, I'm pretty sure. And I'm almost certain that the first um, the first overseas travel we take our daughter on will be to these places. We need to go there again. And so um, it's very hard. Uh, it's very hard nowadays for many people to find a place where they simply feel that they belong. Um, for a lot of people, I suppose, that is social media or it's politics or it's... Uh, any number of things uh, where you feel that you're being listened to or you feel you're being uh, responded to. Um, I personally have rarely felt that connection um, with current events, even though I'm deeply engaged with them on a human basis. Uh, a human basis is no good uh, if nearly all of this is filtered through the sieve just of politics. And so I've never made much of social media. I've never made much of the internet, really, except as a research tool. And and so when we found this place and felt in that way, not in some corny way of uh, we've, we were a past life, we lived in Orkney, but just we've been here uh, before and we belong here somehow. Um, a feeling that we've never had anywhere. Uh, and returning from there and feeling this mourning sense, this is what I was trying to get get to here. And I don't know if I did it in what I just said or if I did it with this poem, but I, it's been nice to see that when people quote from the book, I think I even saw a, a picture from someone's refrigerator where they had their favorite lines of poetry. When they do quote from the book, it seems to be from the very end of this poem. So I am proud of that, that I could take that experience. Um, I could take the loneliness and the not belongingness uh, that made the Orkney uh, experience so powerful. And that I could uh, have written this all out at an Olive Garden, not a Panera this time, but an Olive Garden in suburban Pittsburgh, um, and somehow uh, made it work. Uh, that means a great deal to me. So this is The Wanderer 2, Flight from Orkney. That's the problem with airplanes, Pythias said. And he meant that there was no time to mourn. We left the islands in literal flight, 
and rather than the lingering long look, it was a daybreak dash, a quick death from airport to plane to atmosphere. By then our best words were garbled, stone and sound and sea, green glass, green grass, great magnus, hearth and heather and weathered rock, burns and burials and brow, Horizon blue, a top deep blue, and all that is beneath. Old bones, old bodies, and all that is before. The deep and the dark and the dead, the shore and the shells and the shoulders of land, the going to ground, the generations, the gods, the teeth of the tide and the teeth of deep time. The price to pay for a place like that, the price to pay for poems like these, are such scattershot, scarified syllables born from a belief of having belonged, but forced back among those who belong so normally and naturally to anything that our intensity is terrifying or just tiresome. And so the dead and the damp double back into just another of our silent stoned secrets. So Pythias proceeded in reply, assuring me that for us and for ours, there was only the odd look, the old look, the odd look, but rarely the real look of revelation or the consolation of having communicated. And so the motive was to make meaning and memory a kind of barrow, burial, and bloom, a garlanded grave underground, forged with turf and stone and fire, and then forgotten, until a propitious step or a sudden storm blows open this book's binding, and lays each line out in the light again, shells of syllables dotting the sand. To be summoned by someone is always a surprise, he said, and someday I would feel a spade on my skull. Someday I would stand up and start singing. But until then I should love the loneliness and its lessons. And he bade me to build it well, to bury it well, and wait. So one of the more remarkable things that you can possibly study, possibly experience in the world, at least for me, are the painted Ice Age caves of France and Spain. The big three are that people usually talk about are uh, Chauvet and Lascaux in France and Altamira in Spain. But there are uh, dozens of others uh, that are worth looking at as well. But those are the three most documented as far as I'm aware. Uh, nowadays, I think the earliest artwork that has been dated to these places uh, might even go back as far as 40,000 years ago and uh, the most quote-unquote recent of them is about uh, 15,000 BCE or so. Uh, if you haven't looked at this artwork I would just pause this or forget about this episode entirely and just go and look them up on Wikipedia. Just search for Lascaux or Chauvet or Altamira or find um, Werner Herzog's documentary 
Cave of Forgotten Dreams from, I think, 2011 or 2012 or so. One of the interesting things about all of this is that since their discovery, since the discovery of these caves in the late, which began in the late 19th century, is that uh, people can't go to visit them anymore. Uh, the mythologist, Joseph Campbell, told the story of driving down to, I believe, Lascaux in the 50s or 60s and being able to go inside. But the temperature changes, this is the same thing with uh, certain museums as well these days, or uh, certain uh, chapels with uh, delicate frescoes on the walls. Uh, the temperature changes that, that uh, a constant traffic of people bring in began to deteriorate the walls of these caves, and so uh, people are not allowed in them other than scholars. Um, and I assume that uh, since Werner Herzog was allowed in to film uh, Chauvet, I believe, uh, exceptions can be made. But for the rest of us, there are a number of, uh, number of huge books lavishly illustrated, and, uh, and there is just the articles on Wikipedia which have wonderful photographs of the caves as well. Now, um, for the longest time, I wanted to write something about them, a poem about them. And when I came around to writing the poems in Bone Antler Stone, I saw my opportunity. Uh, these caves are remarkable places, not only because they show human beings painting animals and painting them in amazingly naturalistic, realistic ways, and also at times appearing to paint them in motion. Um, there's also, uh, they also paint hand stencils, so you have the idea of uh, these people. You can put your hand where their hand was, and it's remarkable just to think of a person standing there and blowing paint over their hand and taking it away, and there is their handprint, uh, a stencil on the wall. Um, it's hard to even talk about what, uh, what possibly what this artwork could possibly mean. And of course, many people would not even want to call it artwork in the way that we refer to art today at all. Uh, many of the theories uh, to explain why human beings who probably lived on the edge of survival much of the time, why they would have expended so much energy uh, creating these pictures, uh, many of the answers haven't stood the test of time, or at least it's become obvious that one answer will not do. If you're talking about uh, the span of time between 40,000 and 15,000 BCE, and you're talking about uh, uh, a geographic extent of uh, mostly the western coast of Europe, but I'm pretty sure uh, further inland as well, uh, there simply can't be only one reason why people went into caves and painted them. But some of the, uh, some of the more common explanations were that they were used for uh, sort of adolescent rituals, uh, uh, initiating young boys into adulthood. There was the idea that uh, the animals were painted as a form of uh, sympathetic, sympathetic hunting magic, 
so that you would paint the animal that you wanted to hunt and kill and by doing that you would somehow capture them on the wall and you would have success in the literal hunt. Uh, as I said, these theories don't hold for every cave and or, or for every situation. Uh, there's also the idea that they were used for uh, communal, simple communal settings. But then you have, in some caves, the paintings are close to the entrance, and some of them they are far back. In some cases, I've seen uh, the animals that are featured on the cave walls are actually animals that uh, the people who were living then would not have eaten. So it wasn't a matter, at least in this case, of hunting magic at all. And in some cases, it's said that they are, uh, the animals are shown when they are most fertile. And so that if there is an idea of magic at all, it is almost the beginning of a recognition of uh, fertility, of expressing fertility and then wanting to express it yourself with your own body in a human community as well as an animal community, since the lives of both were so intertwined when it came to uh, survival. Uh, the other idea is simply the, the techniques that were involved. Uh, you can look through some of these books and see the, uh, uh, see the lamps that were used. You can find um, evidence just of uh, where charcoal uh, or where uh, where intense uh, uh, torchlight was uh, blown against a wall, and the evidence of that is still there. There's evidence of children's footprints uh, in the ground uh, that are still, uh, I guess now you would almost think of them being uh, baked into the ground, and you can see where the children would have walked. There's evidence of animals being there before and after humans were there. Uh, there, there's so much stuff going on here that is just miraculous, and it is from so many, many thousands of years ago. Uh, there's an apocryphal story of Picasso being led into uh, one of these caves, I guess in the 1930s or so. This probably never happened. Both archaeologists and art, history, art historians have said this probably never happened, but the, the lesson of it uh, is true enough. Picasso was supposed to have gone in and seen the paintings of these animals and come out and said, we haven't learned very much since then. Um, so to get back to the poem at hand, I, I just wanted to give a, a sense of what uh, this subject means to me. And for those who don't know uh, much about it, uh, a sense of what it could mean to them too. Uh, I've said before that the writing of poetry feels um, like a, a, a whole lot of luck. It almost feels like you are being given the, uh, the task of breaking into a bank and stealing as much money as you can. Very rarely will you actually get out. Uh, very rarely will you end up with what you intended to go in with. Very often the poem you start will not work and it won't go anywhere. Um, so that if you do finish a poem, and if you do finish a poem of any length, it, it feels like you can breathe again. You've caught your breath, you've done it, and you feel lucky to have found the words for what you have wanted to say. 
And with bone antler stone, there were many famous sites, especially Stonehenge, I think I mentioned in the last episode, where I simply could not write a poem about it. But I was able to write a, uh, a three-page poem. It's really a collection of one, two, of, of seven smaller poems called Chauvet, Lascaux, Altamira. And I've always been pretty happy with these, that they, that they got out, that I got them and grabbed them, if you, if you want to take the hunting metaphor, that I caught them. Um, and as with what I've said just now, I don't stick with any one theory of what these paintings, what these pictures could possibly mean, uh, or of one theory of how they were made. Um, there's another, uh, there's a poem here about uh, the idea that while the painting was going on, while the flickering lamps were going on the walls, that people may have been playing music. Uh, they have bird bone flutes from the time and uh, uh, playing uh, some sort of drums on the stalactites. Uh, there's the idea of that as well. And I sort of bring all of them in into these seven little fragments. And I will try to read them here. It says, Now we come to paint with light and fire. There is no violence on the walls, no pursuit or danger. There are no landscapes, only waves of scraped and smoothed stone covered in intended color. There are no hunted animals here, only the ones that fill us with reverence bestiaries of awe and galleries of envy and appreciation, bodies of strength and warmth depicted in their mating perfection in the midst of their multiplying. Put on the walls with scaffold and ladder, paint tubes of hollowed bone or stem, animal hair brushes with the color still loaded, smokeless bone marrow lamps and bare kneecaps filled like a bucket with pigment with dye and daubs and splatters of stain and tincture. The flicker of fire and shadow giving them movement, these animals who mean more than food and who are so important, we carve and incise and draw and paint and put them high up. Some early underworld or merely a different heaven in the dark, the caves always close to spring and river, so much of spring and pregnancy, so much flowing and identification. And this is the next fragment. He beats the stalactite with an old bone, and from it finds an old song with the flightier sound of a bird bone flute. And to this I add my lamp and light it. The ibex scraped on its bottom begins to warm, and the fuel of burning juniper is the aroma of something other than myself. And to this light I mix my colors with cave water. I mix my colors with blood and vegetable oil. And from the sweat of the stones and the heat of my light, an animal appears beneath my hands, all surrounded by juniper green an unforgettable song. And here is one that is about how miraculously these 
early painters used the cave walls where you would uh, use ripples in the walls or uh, uh, the sudden movements of the walls, uh, parts of them popping out or going back in, and you would use that to intensify the picture. This says, the rolling muscular liquid walls rippled and erupting or hollowed, all covered in bison and bear and reindeer, and lion and rhino and horse and ibex, bodies with no earth line as if in flight, rising out of the rock, blurred legs of ash smudged by a passing hand, or a horse's head outlined forever into the soft white wall, as an afterthought with the butt end of a torch. And the next fragment. There is cave darkness without torchlight, cave dim and silence, cave drip and echo, but also fire black from the charcoal hearth, dark as any dark from the well-fed flames, whose glow smells of pine, and whose light illuminates the chaos of animals. Or how the ash is gathered for paint or pigment, and mixed to make red, or left to blacken bone or flint or wood, to draw and scrawl and incise on the wall, using the color of nothing to create everything. And the next one. Now the bear is the one who understands us. And perhaps the bear was us, an older form of human, and how it stands on its legs, some long ancestor preferring to sleep for a season over any of our toil, desiring the direct mystery of life over our chosen mystery of mind. No bear painted us, but we painted them. No bear thought to prop up or set our skulls on slabs or in niches or on ledges, but this is what we did for them in deep veneration of their nerve and endurance. And indeed, an entire book could be written and probably has been written about uh, our prehistoric ancestors' veneration for bears and the idea that perhaps they thought that uh, human beings had once been bears and that maybe these caves were chosen in part because there was evidence that bears had lived there with their uh, scratchings on the walls and uh, as well as just their remains, their skulls, and that uh, the places where the paintings occur uh, in some cases were also places where these bear skulls and these bear remains were uh, venerated. And this is the next fragment. A bison made by his hands, white hands dipped in red, and palms slapped on cold rock again and again, smacked hands turned or righted or angled, and his exhausted step back to see, the animal made only of red palms and rock, red like bison's blood, stone vitality, his awe at a heartbeat behind the wall, and his hands red as a midwife's. And sort of what I was going for here with some of these 
and it's indicated in the uh, in the books about this as well is that it this is around the time uh, where human beings began to have music and then language and uh, a sense of what we would now call the symbolic or the metaphoric and so it would have been meaningful it would have been uh, we can only imagine how meaningful it would have been uh, uh, an almost miraculous event you can think that uh, that human beings could take uh, that they could make uh, color and pigment out of plant material and they could use the uh, the remains of animals their hair or their bones uh, they could use uh, they could use these things for paint but also to light their lamps and to and to hold the material that was used to light their lamps and they could use all of these things in the creation by their own hands of pictures of those same animals and you begin to have that circular uh, way of thinking of symbolism and metaphor and of creation uh, and and what does it mean to be able to and this is a this is this last poem was a uh, is uh, is something that is actually found on one of the walls it is just a bison shape made by one person slapping their hands on the walls covered in uh, red pigment over and over again and they made it that way what a remarkable thing to think to do as Picasso said we haven't really gone much further than that in all that time and it's hard not to feel uh, a burst of emotion or affection or just to feel uh, something romantic about these people uh, that they were the first people to feel these things and uh, the the kind of emotions and perceptions that would have gone through their minds uh, at the start of our ability to express not to express this or that thing but to express anything creatively it's a remarkable a remarkable idea and this last fragment uh, of this poem is about the bears again the idea of uh, coming into the caves and finding uh, that bears have already scraped at the walls and do you paint a bear over top of those scrapings and the rest of that and you begin to think again of the uh, the reverence you feel for animals and the reverence you feel for nature and also a burgeoning idea of what what an early idea what an early conception of uh, divinity might be and humanity's place or reaction or stance uh, in the midst of divinity this is the very last of these poems did the bears who tore at this wall to sharpen their claws did the bears who did this know of the bison whose head would take shape from their scraping and do the bison we make in our heads know how the bears help to make them the bear and the bison all bits of each other and all of them in our minds until splashed on the wall with understanding who put the impulse of making in my hands 
And who keeps us all under such watch? Who is it that knows before me what I and the bear and the bison will do? Here is another poem from my 2018 book, Bone Antler Stone. This is a poem called Cauldron and Drink. And again, uh, with the space of this podcast that we have, uh, it's worth uh, expanding for those who want to hear it about just how archaeology and artifacts and hard-to-grasp history can be turned into a poem. The basic idea, I think, along with uh, the previous poem I read here about uh, the song to the smith and the sun uh, setting into the sea, is to make characters out of these things, out of these people. And in this case, it isn't very hard to imagine uh, the cauldrons of the Iron Age, of Iron Age Europe, uh, becoming characters in their own right. Uh, we have the idea of the Gundestrup cauldron from Denmark, which anyone can find pictures of online, um, with their uh, with the faces of the gods uh, surrounding uh, where the drink would be. There's the famous uh, crater of V in France, which, uh, if you can believe it, from 500 BC uh, is five feet four inches high weighs 450 pounds and could hold 1,100 liters, almost certainly, of wine. It is, uh, according to estimates of people who know these things, the largest vessel, uh, metal vessel, from Western classical antiquity, which I take to mean the largest metal vessel outside of Greece and Rome. Uh, So these people took their their feasting and their drinking very seriously indeed. Uh, There was both uh, the idea in my head of religious intoxication, again you have the Gundestrip cauldron surrounded and decorated by scenes of their gods, Um, and maybe in in a a religious sense that we don't recognize anymore, the, the martial and warrior religious sense. Of just uh, of just soldiers, and uh, or just the people in charge, the kings, feasting and boasting, um, and using these huge uh, containers for drink as a way to do that, and of becoming uh, intoxicated in that way, and also for anyone who's familiar with Irish mythology. Uh, later Irish mythology written about uh, a thousand years later, you would say, or put to writing a thousand years later, you have many stories, especially the one of Brie Crew's feast, where you have uh, the warriors sitting around the table uh, bragging and talking about who deserves the champion's portion of meat. But you can imagine that they would just as well be talking about the champion's portion of alcohol. And 
behind that as well. You think of the Iron Age. Uh, you think of food scarcity. You think of starvation, how easily that must have been a possibility back in those days. So that there is simply, uh, there would have to be a celebration when a large feast took place. There would have to have been such a gratitude and thanks uh, for the existence of a huge meal of both meat and drink. I think of the, the Egyptian statues that we have, uh, I believe they're mostly of scribes, but I'm sure they are of, uh, of, of other Egyptian officials as well. And the basic symbolism was you can tell that they were well off because uh, whoever carved the statue carved folds in their stomach so you knew that they were a bit fat. And they were fat because they could afford to eat. They could afford to eat so much. And that really is just a hint of what goes into writing a poem like this. And then the, the very last step is simply just to turn it into music, to make the sound of the poem as joyful as the feast must have been. And this is a poem that, I'm, that I really do uh, enjoy reading out loud. This is called Cauldron and Drink. They love their honey and they love the vine. The wine and beer they engender with fire and the altered world each takes them to. They name their vessels like newborns. They name their goblets and flagons and mixing bowls and give titles to their cauldrons, those cornucopias of bronze or clay or silver, a few or a few hundred gallons deep for meaningful intoxication and the huge feast. Faces beaten into the metal sheets, polished with running honey and mead and wine, the gorgon or the boar or the winged deer or the antlered god, legs crossed, the animal master with serpent in hand and surrounded by canine and feline and stag. And so, take a long drink and go for some outsized strength. Go for some feat of appetite and bragging. Drown your faces in grapes drench your faces in gold. Here are two more poems from my 2018 book, Bone, Antler, Stone. And these two poems take up the stone aspect of the title, both in metallurgy and with uh, stone itself on its own. And the first poem is called Song to the Smith. Hobble-headed, odd, and with a lame foot, a weird man, the weirdest, talking to nobody but the fire's colorful heart, how it dances and from its flames the stones of our forebears are distended and beaten and poured. Stone the enduring sign of our ancestors. Stone the rough, jagged bones of earth. 
suddenly smooth and luminous from his hands, the solitary smith, the borderland smith, the smith both dangerous and jeopardized, honestly feared, but then mocked for his impairment, a lameness or a lag or a lazy eye, concerned with the transformation we seek, concerned with ground beauty, sun beauty, with the voice of the dead and the metal's jarring clang. But there is an equal trembling at such talent, the attitude given to gods obeyed but not loved, shamans and smiths, two birds from the same nest, the same unreliable nest and world that requires their haunted gifts at all, fear and hope, a fusion in their fire, that their eyes and hands dance with and renew, within them too much of death, too much of life. And that's one of my favorite poems from the book. I have a, a great affection for this guy. I've had a great affection for a long time now to the stories in Greek myth of Hephaestus or of his Roman counterpart Vulcan, uh, these, these guys who uh, are the least, apparently the least heroic of the gods, basically living underground, uh, all sooty in front of the fire. And, and it's easy in the stories for them to be mocked as oafs or as uh, disfigured, uh, being disfigured gods, that being an odd thing to, to say. And so when I came to write uh, Song to the Smith, I had that in mind as well as the writings of archaeologists who suggest that, uh, that handicapped people, people with bad legs, lame foots, and the rest, it's possible that they were given the jobs of being smiths because it was believed that the impairment in their body meant that they had a deeper connection within to things divine. And there's also the idea, uh, I don't know how much I buy it, but it's, it's quite an idea, that the, the power, almost the magic, they probably would have seen it as a form of magic, that metallurgy was to these people uh, was so great that when they came upon someone or when they found someone who was able to do these things, they would have injured them themselves to keep them within a town or a village. Uh, it's a very strange uh, place to be in, and I tried to put that into the poem, uh, the idea of this person being both feared and revered. And, uh, and I put that not only into this poem, but I knew that I would end up putting it into a much longer poem, a new long narrative poem that I've been working on over the past year and where the where the hero of the poem is a smith with a lame foot and in the very first book you have him uh, living in a village where people respect him but he sort of has to live on the outskirts they don't trust him they respect but do not trust him they need him but would rather not see or speak with him um, and the second poem is just called A Song to Stone. It seemed like a good, uh, a good counterpart to 
the one about the smith. And this is A Song to Stone. The hardened, quiet persistence of stone, the longevity of our graves beneath them, not permanent but very nearly so. Our people should be stone, our families. The seasons are stone, their circling endurance, some slab in the landscape always there. Love is stone, the gods are stone, stable. The ground is stone, and it's always giving. The rivers and the seas are stone, ceaseless. But then the most adorable anything splits, or the ground betrays us to starvation, and all the waters rise and overwhelm. The gods can ignore us, and the seasons tilt, and the oldest friends give way to frenzy and violence, stone put to slaughter's use. Yet none of these are so unlikely as failed stone. Instead, deepest veins in all directions, exemplar of stillness and tenacity. Here are two more poems from my 2018 book, Bone Antler Stone. And these take up two sacred sites, two ancient, uh, prehistoric ancient sites, in uh, one in Britain and one in Ireland. The first is called Star Car in Britain, and the second is called New Grange in Ireland. And I tried to write poems about many, uh, many of the more famous sites, especially Stonehenge, and about uh, other sites that just have uh, more of a personal meaning to me. And many of them just did not work. They never did. I would try and try and try again, and nothing would work. My wife and I took a trip once to uh, the southwest coast of Britain uh, called the Lizard, and just stared at the ocean during a long walk there, and I've tried, I don't know how many times, to write a poem about what it was like to be on that coast watching the violence of those waves, but it has never happened. But I was lucky enough that the poem about Star Car and a poem about Newgrange happened. They worked, and it seems to be, I just looked at the drafts of the poem uh, a few minutes ago, before recording this, and it seems to be uh, a stroke of luck. Uh, there's only so much real preparation you can do when you're writing a poem either about archaeology or in the case about uh, Lizard Point in England, where you look back at the photos and the videos and just try to have the impression of your memory of being there. Uh, there's only so much preparation you can do, and at some point it does seem to be uh, a matter of luck, whether or not it works. And in the case of Star Car and, um, and New Grange, the poems were written fairly quickly and didn't go through that much uh, revision. I should say that uh, 
to start, to just give a date, uh, Star Car dates from at least 8500 BC, and it is famous for, according to uh, what it says on Wikipedia, the finds include Britain's oldest structure and 21 red deer stag skull caps that may have been headdresses, as well as many other things. Uh, I will put a link to this uh, in the post description. If just taking a look at the uh, what appear to be skull caps, it's pretty incredible. Uh, these remains, and this is what I came up with for Star Car. Beneath an assembly of birch and aspen, they settle the red deer dead on the ground. His meat is mindfully removed, salted, and stored. The rest of him slipped with dread and respect into the good lake with all the others. Such deer crowd their bellies like nothing else, and so crowd their minds and crown their heads too. Skull cap removed and some bones scraped away. Skull cap perforated and a strap pulled through to fit the head of a human being, antlered, weighed down, overwhelmed and aware. And wearing that helmet, that other head, did they commune there out on the water? Did they tremble on the platform made there, and made with more care than their living space? This door to all the deer that had fed them, the deep lake and the submerged hunt magnified. I'm still pretty happy with that. That's one of the first poems I wrote in this book. Um, the next one is about Newgrange in Ireland, which dates back to at least 3200 BCE, and it's one of the more famous sites in Ireland, so I wasn't even sure if I would be able to get a handle on it at all. Um, as Wikipedia says, it is a exceptionally grand passage tomb built during the Neolith Neolithic period around 3200 BCE making it older than both Stonehenge and the Egyptian pyramids. Uh, it is known for um, uh, the, the artwork inside, the carvings inside on the walls, and, uh, and just, the, uh, just the change that it went through over time. But the basic idea is here, and it is that it was built using uh, material from all around the local area. And that is what I was trying to capture in this. In this sense, too, the poem is, uh, is just making music of the local names and the names of the local sites and the, uh, the geologic terms as well, to just try and get a sense of uh, what a place this must have been to go to for uh, for reverence and and worship and to uh, pay respects to the dead. This is New Grange. There would be new, there would be no New Grange without the sun. No need without this ultimate ancestor. No mound. No chambered passage and vaulted roof. 
no carvings of circles and spirals and arcs. Without this original ring, this coil dug into the earth at the end of each day, down into the ground where the dead are, but into the air every new morning, the dead there too, and the trail of the sun always. There would be no new grange without the Boyne, the river and its reused pebbles, or those of the Wicklow, Morn, and Cooley Mountains, and a dozen places many miles distant, beach and riverbed now walled interior, a contribution from every direction for this crown in the landscape, this turfed cap dressed in a belt of sparkling quartz, mirroring the sun and the size of a mountain. And reading that again, it sounds like a sequel to a poem I read here a few weeks ago called The Sun Sets Into the Sea, that reference for the sun. Um, yes, I just love the... I just feel lucky that I was able to get uh, the music of that down. In a strange way, this poem was never published before it reached book form. Uh, it seemed to please me more than it ever really pleased anyone else. And I hope just the sound of it uh, gives it a little bit more new life here. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.